Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Delicious Podcast July episode with me, Julie Smith. This month, we've got fabulous Mexican chef Martha Ortiz on food and sensuality. We're in California to meet Gina Gallo, granddaughter and great niece of the post-prohibition wine pioneers, Ernest and Julio Gallo. We've got goats with James Wetlaw. And we're off to the Swiss Alps to forage for our lunch. But first, editor of Delicious Magazine, Karen Barnes, tells us what's in the July issue. One of my favourite features is uh, Felicity Cloak, who's our food writer in residence. She has travelled around France. She's a mad keen cyclist and she's sort of following the route of the Tour de France and creating recipes uh, that remind her of that trip and the favourite places that she's been to in France. And I love that sense i think we all like that sense that when we come home from holiday we can recreate the food that we've had while we're away will it taste the same that's always the big question um and you know that we always have we like to have strong feature moments in the magazine well one of them is is red wine really as good for you as people think i'm going to leave that question hanging in the air because i don't really want to give it away but I am feeling slightly sad about it. Well, really, because the answer of the Mediterranean diet is all about drinking communally. So I would say whatever the feature says, and I don't know because I haven't had privy to this one, but if you're drinking it with other people and you're having a bit of a laugh and you're having some food, it cannot be bad for you. Shall we just agree (laughs) agree to agree or agree to disagree? Uh, I think that's the problem, actually, with a lot of research that... If you take things out of context, if you look at a very healthy group of people, they, if they're Italians living in the southern, south of Italy, they, they may well be having siestas every day, but also working very hard manually during the day. And there's a lot of convivial moments going on. All of those things are part of your healthy approach to life, aren't they? So red wine in that mix is a good thing. Um, but it's nevertheless interesting to read about. And we have lots of other questions where we... A little while ago, we asked readers and listeners to give us their burning food questions. Interesting things like padron peppers. They're always used, you always used to be told that there was a hot one. One in ten was hot. Well, they never are anymore. Have you noticed that? That and whether some salt is salty than others. What makes runny honey turn cloudy in the jar? All essential facts for foodies. Yes. Save them up for your Christmas parties. Yes, there are things that will make you utterly fascinating around the dinner table. (laughs) Mexican chef Martha Ortiz was in town last month to prepare the food for the launch of the Frida Kahlo exhibition at London's Victoria and Albert Museum. I met her at her restaurant Elia Canta 
at the Intercontinental Hotel to find out how the spirit of Frida is in every plate on her menu. I think all Mexican women, we adore Frida because she was a feminist. She was a woman by her own. She had a voice. She was a great artist. She really loved, breed, eat, see Mexico. And I, you know, the colors of that cuisine. We eat colors and we have this beautiful food with high contrast. That's what I love about Mexico. You don't have these kind of creamy combinations. You have the soul, you have the contrast. Like Guillermo del Toro said once, they, they asked him when he won the Oscar, why can you be so gentle and talk about monsters? And he said, I'm Mexican. So I adore his response. So Mexico has this tenderness, but at the same time, this is strong culture. And I think in countries like Mexico, food is identity. We are so close to our food that even I grew up thinking that I was made of maize, you know, <laughs> like in the Popol Vuh book. And I say, I have to be aware of the fire because if not, I'm going to be cooked and dead. Really? <laughs> yes, yes, it's true. So, What did your mom say? Did she let you believe it? <laughs> she let me believe it until the day I said, Mother, she, she told me, you are such a good cook but why don't you want to come near the fire and I say because I'm going to be dead why are you going to be dead because I will cook like a tamal <laughs> I asked her why she believes that Mexican food is such a different experience to food from the rest of the world Mexican food is not happiness food it's a pleasure and pleasure can be a little bit painful can be a little bit strange but it's sensuality and pleasure yeah. not happiness you're having this black beautiful mole that I adore and I always said that picante elegante like you know this uh, hot spice elegant it's like a lover the best when you have these very elegant lovers you remember the kiss and it's like a long-term memory like the picante when it's so elegant it's a long term you know it's in the soul you feel it in the mouth and you say wow what a kiss from the picante <laughs> but the food that you do here if people wanted to come to Elia Cantá at the Intercontinental would they get that experience of, of course they will they will be seduced by the colors of the food now we have in this floral menu a pink mole imagine with white chocolate so it's It's fantastic. You will adore it. Tell me about this one. Uh, this is a vampire ceviche. This is in our regular menu. I call it vampire because it's made with the sangrita and with mango, has a sorbet and comes served with butterflies. You know, it's butterflies that Beautiful. will fly all over your palate. And of course, lots and lots of people, younger people, are, are going on their gap years to Mexico now yeah. in a way that they used to go to Thailand, they go to Mexico. Yeah. And, and we know that Rick Stein has just done a massive series uh, 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 about Mexican food, and he's a genuine fan of Mexican food. I wonder if, like we did with Thailand, arguably, whether our interest Western interest could spoil Mexico. No, of course no. We are strong enough. And we, we are strong enough. And imagine we have these neighbors, the United States, and we keep our identity. And I think Mexico has 
have a big cultural heritage. So there's no way that they cannot damage Mexican food, I'm sure. In Mexico, there is no way. Good. We will defend it. Women will defend it. Now, what do you know about Californian wines? Those of you who've been to Napa or Sonoma County will know that its terroir is packed with stories, not just of fog and droughts, valley floors and mountain vines, but of family dynasties and a commitment to sustainability that is an example to the world's wine communities. I met Gina Gallo in Sonoma County at her Dry Creek General Store. And she told me about her grandfather, Julio, and his brother, Ernest, who had become two of the most successful winemakers in America after spotting a gap in the market in 1933, the end of Prohibition, when they were aged just 17 and 19. I asked her how her grandfather, Julio, was able to learn about wine at such a young age. He had a high school degree but was not fortunate enough to go away to college because they started the family, his family business, his business with his brother, Ernest. And he um, saw in Sonoma County, he would travel through all the backyards, the barns, tasting wines and talking to the old farmers and a lot of them Italian immigrants, some of them French as well. And there was this one particular vineyard, Laguna, that we have today in our portfolio. It's in Russian River, west of Russian River, so very cool climate, very influenced by the Russian River Valley. I mean, sorry, the Russian River itself, the fog. And uh, and the day when he purchased it, he gained his confidence by picking the apples from this particular vineyard that was predominantly Gravenstein apples on it, not all vines. And he would take those home down to the valley where I grew up and make, my grandmother would make apple pie. And his confidence after tasting this apple pie over and over and over again, he loved it. Very crisp, very spice, had the cinnamon, the nutmeg, but it wasn't cloying, it wasn't sweet. And he projected that Laguna vineyard that had those apples on it, someday putting Chardonnay there would be the perfect match and it would pair up with the soil, the site, and would be known for some of the best Chardonnay out there in the world. And today, interesting enough, that's where our estate Chardonnay is coming from and that is where the signature series that I create under um, our family name is coming from as well. But he learned from the apples and it's it's so true in farming. What has been there before is so important to understand and know. And when you taste the Chardonnay, you will actually get a bit of that crisp uh, liveliness of the Gravenstein apple. Gina explained how being a vineyard owner means taking responsibility for the wines, the environment and the people they employ. I asked her if she would call herself a steward of the land. One big thing that our family believes in is one acre natural habitat, one acre into vineyard. So having that real true ecosystem that's very well balanced and that's what sustainability is all about. The way you say it, stewards, is so important because that's what we are. We're farming for generations to generations and what we do today is for the next generations is being good to the, and understanding that land and giving it what it needs. Um, and when we talk sustainability, it's really, it goes beyond the dirt. And my grandfather had a great saying, the quality of vineyard, of a vineyard is the footprint of the owner in that vineyard and I think that's a true tale um, but with that it begins there for quality of wine and these top-end wines of Tawar but then it doesn't stop there it's the employees that you're working close with the other winemakers um, it's also the uh, community that you work in it's supporting that community so that sustainable really is full circle it's beginning to end but it doesn't just start and end in the vineyard it keeps going through to the people and people are everything and the Gallo family support many of the vineyards in the area, including the McMurray Ranch, once home to Hollywood icon Fred McMurray, whose daughter Kate explained how Gallo's patronage had allowed her to keep her home. 
other sustainability is sustaining personal family histories. Yeah. And that's rooted not only in the land, but very similar to what you and I were talking about at lunch about family recipes, about passing stories on, passing family stories on that are particular to that family. And we all have stories. We're all made up of stories. As land has its own story, we too, as families and as individuals, have our stories that are connected to each other, but rooted in the land. Yeah, and very much part of this whole area here, the, the old house has been maintained yes. as your family home. We're able to walk through the kitchen and imagine your family cooking. Yeah. And did all their famous friends like Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, did they come and eat here? Jimmy Stewart was here and I know um, John Wayne came out very early on in my father's John life. John who introduced here. your parents. Yes, got them together on a blind date. By the time I rolled around with my siblings, you know, it was a much quieter life out here then. Yeah. So. Importantly, Gina Gallo, yes. the Gallo family have yeah. now bought up the whole ranch right. and are in charge of the Chardonnay. You are the brand ambassador. Yes. Do you think that affects the wines? I, I think what it does is, having worked in the film business, other than filmmaking, I find winemaking, vineyard, um, the most collaborative art form there is because it is collaborative. First of all, Mother Nature has to be collaborative, and sometimes she's not. But also, there are many hands that touch this from the time it's planted until it's actually in the bottle. Yeah, and of course the vines themselves are full of stories. We were yes. talking over lunch about the tension, the stress they're put under. Yes. I mean, I see them as little sort of Disney characters. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but the stress is interesting because if you stress a vine, that means how much water are you going to give that vine on any given day. And sometimes the stress, as with people, it builds character and Resilience. characteristics and if the weather is inclement or there's a stronger wind and that's why they're planted where they're planted the different varietals because they reflect the weather and the soil so down in what we call our, our cooler climate down in uh, the Petaluma wind gap there's much, of course much more wind so they have to wear a little thicker skin to accommodate that and up here the softness of the morning fog and the uh, wonderful um, what I like to call soft breeze in the afternoon, that doesn't require so much of the grape, you know? So it, it's, it has a more relaxed existence up here. As do you. <laughs> yes, you live yeah. in a, a, a little cabin. cottage. Yes, a, little a cabin my dad built the in the Russian 1940s. River. I know, oh. I know. And I keep, here's what's so much fun for me, having been raised on a cattle ranch, I can hear the seasons all year round through my window. And certain times of the year, if it's not pouring rain, I keep the window open because it tells me what's going on outside. And I live in a Chardonnay vineyard. And right before we pick, I hear the gondolas, the trucks going in to the ranch, and they're clanging and clacketing because they're empty. And then I wait, and I wait. And then I hear the change of gears as they come out of the ranch, but they are silent because they're full of fruit. So that's how I tell the different seasons when I listen out of my bedroom window what's going on it's great hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f are you talking about you insane hollywood ass 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, James Wetlaw is known in the food business as Goat Man and supplies some of the best restaurants in London with Kid Goat. But in his new book, Goat, he argues that the market's newest and most sustainable meat has to be zero grazed, or housed, as he calls it, if you're to be a responsible goat farmer. I asked him how that growing market in Kid Goat can be called sustainable. Zero grazing and sustainability, I think, are two different things. I mean, the, the sustainability aspect of Cabrito is that we take a previously wasted resource and turn it into food, which is the sustainability angle. Um, I, as I argue in the book, I'm emotionally a free ranger. I worked for River Cottage for a long time. Um, I've been interested in the politics of food for a long time. So emotionally, I'm a free ranger. Um, but there is a demand in this country and around Europe for supermarkets to have dairy, goat dairy products on the shelves. And that requires large scale farming. If you're talking, to, if you're talking about a farm of 2,500, which is the biggest in the UK, then you're talking about trying to manage the foot health of 2,500 animals. Keeping them on dry ground is the only way you're going to do that. But there's also the, the managing the feed. And that comes down to a couple of things. First of all, goats are very susceptible to worms and flukes that live in grass. They're not evolved to, to eat grass. They're evolved to eat their browsers rather than grazers. Goats look up for their food rather than down. So they'll pick stuff off dry stuff off trees rather than eating in wet ground. Would you call that an intensive farm? I wouldn't. It's housed, for sure, and you can get into the semantics of the word. Intensive for, intensive for me means confined. Now, confined to me in an intensive farming uh, context means enclosed space quite tightly kept, and that isn't true of the goats. Are they allowed to wander around in, in the paddock during the course of the day and then they go to bed? They don't go outside at all. It's a very complex issue, and when we first started, we, we were... Sushi and I'm a girlfriend and business partner. We were talking about whether we should get involved in the intensive dairy, intensive dairy industry at all. And we decided it was better to be involved in the intensive dairy industry and the, the housed dairy industry and take those animals and put them into the food system than ignore it completely. Now, the book is about the goat. And so you've pretty much given the whole of the introduction to this argument because you feel very passionate, don't you, about goat husbandry. The genesis of Cabrito comes from the idea that the goats were born and their lives had no value. Really fundamentally, I still, even after six years of doing it, can't get my head around how an animal's life can have no value at the moment it's born. That just feels, that just felt very wrong to me as the starting point. Um, 
And then there's the waste in the food system and there's the, you know, the amount of heat and light and manpower that goes into maintaining those pregnancies. And then a goat has two males and they were euthanized, so that pregnancy comes to nothing. Yes, you get the milk from the, from the lactating female, but all of that pregnancy is wasted. So that, there are a lot of reasons why we, on a sort of, talk about the ethics and morality of it for a, for a second, there was a lot of reasons that I found interesting. Then you go to the other side of the argument, you think the rest of the world eat goat's meat. There is an incredible amount of really beautiful recipes out there why don't we in the uk mm. and then you then it opens the door to this exploration of other cuisines that have goat as a central part of their of their sort of mix and it allows you to explore a little bit which is hopefully what the recipes in the book do give us an example of um the kind of recipes that you use to cook uh, goat that perhaps we haven't thought of before kibber the syrian national dish i mean it is a Every culture has its version of a tartare. You know, the French have steak tartare. We've taken that here. There are raw food, eating raw meat is not as unusual as it sounds. The Syrians have this amazing dish called kibba which is the, there are two kibbas. There's a deep fried one, which is called kibba. Kibba is the raw one. And essentially a sinew-free piece of meat that you hand chop, because you've got to hand chop it to get the consistency right. If you put it through a mincer, it becomes a bowl of mince rather than one thing. And then you introduce into that lemon juice and chives and parsley and mint and a handful of pine nuts I tend to use sunflower seeds uh, instead uh, oh and bulgur wheat equal amounts of bulgur wheat and meat uh, and it's essentially a raw chop sort of tartare version of goat meat and I, I just I love it because people's picture in their mind of what goat is is tough and gamey and difficult to eat and needs to be stewed and so you that lovely sort of soft ironiness you get in raw meat you go to the other end of the scale where we've got lots of cooking over fire and smoking the animals for smoking the shoulders for sort of five hours. There's a real cross section. There's sausages and burgers and, you know, just trying to make it as accessible as possible. Ramael Scully, the latest ex-Nopi chef to set up his own restaurant in London, is a food lover's dream of ethnic mix with an Irish Balinese father, Chinese Indian mother, was born in Malaysia and brought up in Sydney. Mirroring the magazine feature Slice of My Life, I began by asking him for his first food memory. When I was born, mum and dad divorced. So I had to go live on my auntie's side, which was a very strict Muslim woman. And most kids would have cereal or toast. I would actually have a bowl of eggplant sambal. Didn't like it, I didn't get the taste. And I, maybe it was just that spongy texture, but you know, now we all love it. Um, but I used to get it and put it in a tissue and put it under the bin and wrap it up and not eat it. And now I, I love that stuff, you know? It's amazing how maturity changes your palate. Okay, what song would you play to, to cook one? You're gonna give me a second of that one. That's a, that's a, that's a tricky one. Yeah, I know, they're all tricky. I do like a bit of R&B and soul, so I'd probably, probably say a bit of Marvin Gaye. Yeah. You know, grapevine, sexual healing. Maybe I need some sexual healing. That's why I'm feeling that way when I cook my food, so. <laughs> the best thing you ever learned from Yatamata Lenghi. You know, when you get a chance to do, you find it to showcase your boss or your mentor, your style of food you end up putting too many elements on the plate and you're not focusing on just on the ingredient itself. And I had that problem at the start. I just, number one, I came out from French cooking. So I had, everything had butter. There's nothing wrong with butter, by the way, but everything had butter. And then, um, so what he taught me was less is more. So it's about the beauty of the ingredients, the yeah. quality of the ingredients. Yeah, stripping back, basically. Yeah. Now, if you're considering a food-themed holiday this year, how about foraging and feasting in the Swiss Alps, where the tourist board has been busy rethinking what it can offer visitors all year round? I went to Verbier to discover that the Alps are not just for Christmas. 
and joined a group of foodies as we explored the Alps on a gourmet gathering with cherries, our mountain guide. So this is called fireweed. Uh, it's what grows after forest fires. It's the first plant that will colonize an area. It's also a plant that up in uh, northern Canada and Alaska after a fire, you know, the, the sun doesn't set up there in the summer. So it's continually moving and this turns bright. They're, they're about three meters high there. And it's, it's as if the field were on fire. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. So these uh, ladies in Alaska go out and pick the flower and they make it into jellies and uh, eat it. It personally has no taste. It's really pink. Uh, but apart from that, it has no taste as far as I'm concerned, but sugar. As we gathered our lunch, Cherries explained how every plant has a function, and not just on the plate. It looks kind of like a rooster on the top. When it dries out, it makes these pockets that you can see down here. And then when it dries, the seeds are in here, right? So it's not dry yet. It's still green, but the seeds are in there. Well, there we go. Avalanche <laughs> danger. So the seeds are in this little pocket, and this turns kind of paperish. And when there's wind, it rattles. And when it rattles at the correct sound, the farmers know that's the time to go out and cut the grass and let it dry to make the hay for the winter. This is the flower has already, it's called campion. The uh, flower has already flowered, and this is just the seed pocket that's left okay so you take the stalk the little stem piece put your hand in a fist you got your flower you've got your fist and then you go like that very hard it's a playground isn't it it's not all about you know getting stuff that's really really good for you it's both i think getting the stuff that's really good for you makes it fun so it's it just intermixes it's one of those it's cross-pollinating, <laughs> the playground and the good stuff. With plantain leaves, nettles and baskets brimming with alpine herbs and flowers, we set up the table at La Maison and pounded our nettle pestos with serac, an alpine curd and olive oil from just over the border in Italy and assembled our alpine salads. The big-leafed plants we need to chop up really finely, Okay, I mean like really, really finely, and uh, put them in different bowls. Uh, and then some of them are going to get cooked, like the spinach. And uh, if we're going to cook the spinach, we can also cook the stinging nettle. The hogweed, we don't have to. Uh, we're going to make, I brought along to add to our culinary delight, a couscous that we're going to make. Okay. And then we're going to make a sauce out of the plants and add it in. And we're going to make ourselves a little uh, jardin sur pain, which is a little garden on bread, meaning we make a kind of pesto with the different herbs. So that's the yarrow, yeah? This is the yarrow. And in the there you've one. also got the geranium and the clover. Clover, daisies. We have wild thyme, uh, the fireweed flowers. Over lunch, Isabel and Adam told me what they thought of their gourmet gatherings. I liked, it. my favourite is the dark pesto, which is the... I'm, I'm not sure. Is it the wild spinach? Well, no, they're both sure. Nettle, actually. It's a little bit bitter, but it's got really a nice, interesting flavour, really. I wonder if that's the olive oil. The olive oil <laughs> is rather fantastic. <laughs> and the olive oil one is tastier, but the um, curd one is maybe prettier. And as we looked over the stunning valley below, the group chatted about some of the other activities they tried in this vast mountain range. Um, yesterday we were on e-bikes. And um, I climbed a mountain. Yeah, you climbed a mountain. <laughs> Mount 4. Cool. Which is cool, back to the top. Did you do the sunrise? No, not the sunrise. Because uh, on Thursdays, every Daylight Thursday, they have um, 
sunrise up at the top of the pool, and that is absolutely amazing. If you go on the night when it's the full moon, you get up there and the sun is rising over Mont Blanc, and the moon is setting over the Matterhorn, and it's like you don't know where to look. You just, you go schizo. Everyone's taking photos in every direction. It's just awesome. But when there's no moon, you're always just looking at the sunrise, really, so it's kind of interesting. And so the test kitchen at Delicious HQ, where Livy from the food team has been working up a recipe for a summer roast. So for me, I don't have a family to cook for. It's just two of us that live at home. So I thought it would be nice to do a kind of twist on that. Rather than having something, a big lunch that you'd serve on a Sunday at one o'clock and have everybody around, it's quite nice to still be able to do a roast, but do a more summery, easy, light version of it. So this month I've got my whole roast place with anchovy and sage butter and it's got new potatoes and there's a little twist you've got sea vegetables in there as well which have become really popular recently like what um so in this particular recipe we've used a mix of samphire um and sea aster and you can get things like sea purslane as well mm. available in coming more available in sea purslane. you can yeah, yes down to your local river <laughs> picks them up. yeah you can and down to your salt marshes um but they're, they're also available in supermarkets now which is making them really accessible to people and they add a really nice sort of umami salty tangy kick to the dish mm. which is lovely as well and make it look really pretty as well yeah it's nice to get that bit of green in it's yeah. the kind of thing that everybody wants in summer so what would you put for on the dessert menu for just the two of you on a really baking hot Sunday afternoon in July. <laughs> on a really baking hot Sunday afternoon in July, I definitely don't want to be spending much time in the kitchen. So this is all a throw it all in one pan and walk away kind of thing. For me, it would have to be something really fresh and seasonal. So gorgeous strawberries and maybe put some elderflower cordial and some whipped cream or something like that and have it with lovely crumbs of shortbread and just something that you can whip up in 10 minutes that's just on the table as soon as you need it. Thanks for listening to The Delicious Podcast. Next week and every week, I'll be back with more stories from the world of Delicious magazine. So don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a bit. And we'd love to know what you'd like to hear on this podcast. So drop us a note at webeditor at deliciousmagazine.co.uk or message us on Facebook or Twitter. See you next week.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.